something something podcast podcast weird weird this is becoming a tone poem i hate introducing things it feels fake formal unreal i want to start a podcast so that's what i'm doing but it seems unnatural to say hello when i can't see your face so i'm just rambling my name is Andrew. Uh, I'm a teacher by day and a writer by night, and I've been blogging and self-publishing for a number of years now, and I've got another podcast with a couple of friends I do a magazine with, and uh, this one is me. This is the Content Blues podcast, based on contentblues.com, the aforementioned blog, a place to discuss content in the struggle and agonies of creating it, which sounds pretentious, uh, and it is, because it's, it's not real struggle. It's a struggle that exists in your mind, but it's a different kind of a struggle. Incidentally, absinthe is very tasty. So this is going to be me just kind of uh, talking, kind of whatever, kind of discussing my current place in the process of creation, what I'm working on, what I'm doing as an author, as an artist, as anything. And uh, also talking about what else I've encountered, a kind of place for culture, place for things of the mind, it's going to be artisticy and dweeby and uh, the kind of place where you can say artisticy and just keep going because it doesn't really matter. Incidentally, absinthe is delicious. So where am I right now? I'm in the process of uh, of doing a, what they call a developmental edit, uh, which I just wrote about, which I just blogged about on Content Blues for a. Uh, a novel slash novella I've been working on, The Meditations of Caius Caligula, the kind of idea that uh, started as a joke and became quite serious. Um, first is a kind of parody send-up of the uh, more common I, Claudius idea of uh, the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, which I, I read in college or really after college and found to be very, very, very incredibly boring. Um, I've read other Stoicism since then. I've read Seneca, and that seemed a little more grounded and focused, but Marcus Aurelius came across like the kind of guy who was desperately trying to preach something that he couldn't actually put into practice because he spent most of his reign at war on the borders of the Roman Empire, and so didn't really get a chance to just sit back and chill and accept what nature had to offer him, because his job was to do the opposite of that as the, as the emperor. So I didn't really like the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. I found it dry and tiring and unfocused and both impassioned and bland which is the opposite of what you want. Uh, later on, I encountered I, Claudius and uh, the BBC series from the 70s and found that wonderful to, uh, 
to absorb. Actually, I think I I saw I, Claudius first and then decided to read Marcus Aurelius and found it dull. Uh, I eventually read the book, I, Claudius, by Robert Graves, the source material. It was an okay novel. Uh, it didn't really have any surprises for me that um, wasn't in the, the miniseries. Although the... The, the voice that Graves gives to Claudius is quite, uh, it's quite good. It, it, it comes across very much like a real character, a real man. Um, has a, I don't know if you could call it. See, this is the problem, because not having a whole lot of contact with actual ancient Rome, you don't know if that's really the way they would have taught or spoke or thought, but, uh, it gives off the right vibe. Graves had the right kind of classical education, one presumes. So anyway, half as a joke and half as a kind of wondering what I could do, I started coming up with the, the meditations of Caius Caligula. Um, I have done a little research on the actual person of Caligula. I've read some, some good biographies about him. Um, not necessarily Suetonius' Lives of the Twelve Caesars, although I did read that and some other source material from the time, you know, Lucretius and, uh, and the Aeneid and Ovid, just to get a kind of flavor. But some, some recent biographies, an excellent recent biography of Caligula, which is kind of inverts the common narrative, um, puts forward the idea that he was not a crazy emperor so much as a guy who wanted to be an open monarch um, 250 years before the Roman Empire would accept that. And so he was uh, assassinated uh, first by his guard and then his character assassinated by people like Suetonius who wrote Lives of the Twelve Caesars. And uh, half the things that were said about Caligula are dubious. Uh, I, don't, I don't believe he had sex with his sisters. That's that's too too ribald uh, a detail, and you don't actually see it in Suetonius. It comes along later in Cassius Dio. So it's uh, I think a lot of the extreme details come across like exaggerated notions, like character assassinations. I do believe he named his horse Consul, but I think he did that as a joke. Um, I think everything he did was a, a joke or a prank designed to humiliate the senates the aristocracy that had tr traditionally held power in the roman republic because he wanted them to accept him as a monarch and not as a as a pretend dictator a false dictator what had happened was uh, julius caesar became dictator for life and they assassinated him so augustus did everything in his power to hold on to all the positions of power without seeming to. And that was how the Roman Empire began in the false pretense of democracy. A man who called all the shots while pretending to just be a, a democratic leader is, is what Augustus was. And that was a, a great tension, which he had the, the wit to pull off, but his successors didn't necessarily, and Caligula certainly didn't necessarily. 
So I wanted to write about that, and I wanted to write about the transition from Republican virtue to imperial chaos. And Caligula is definitely the transitional figure for that, because he was he was openly tyrannical, instead of hiding his tyranny behind proxies, like Augustus or Tiberius did. So, I, I gave him a kind of a comic vibe. I wrote it first person, and I had a lot of fun with it. And uh, then I wanted to kind of pull back a little bit and uh, make him less of a joke and more of a real person, a real character. So I'm adding a lot more details, which are very novelly, like certain specific remembered scenes that uh, this man is recording and remembering all at once that have, you know, visions and visuals and scenes and settings and dialogue, which uh, uh, the, in the initial draft didn't have. It was just... Uh, a kind of him ranting, which was was fun, but it's not really enough for a whole story. I decided to give it some emotional weight. So that's what I'm working on right now. The full, deep edit of the meditations of Caius Caligula. And I want to get that out and published sometime this summer. That's the plan. It was supposed to be out this spring, but that didn't happen because the, the edit got bigger than I could anticipate. It wasn't just doing a line edit, um, making sure all the language fit and all the tone was right. The, the, the book needed more in order to be a book. So that's where I am with that. And there's also a Western, a novella um, called Death Riding, which has been stewing in me for a very long time. A very, very, very long time. When I was when I was fourteen, and I decided to be a writer, I I wrote a. I started writing a western of all things. I'd never even read Louis L'Amour or any other western author. I just decided I was going to do this, and I clacked it out on my typewriter, and I did not have the. Uh, the the will to persist that say Charles Bukowski had. Um, or the, the access to beer, because I was 14. So I kind of gave up after a while, because I realized I didn't really know what I was doing. But I created a character that I always kind of thought about, and I knew at some point I was going to come back to this character, this gunslinger in black, and um, I have. There's a, there's a novel based on him that's still... In the developmental stage, but the the novella created is uh, I'm probably just going to do a line edit on it because I keep I keep going back and forth as to whether I want to add more scenes to it. But I think it's it's starkness and it's plainness and it's harshness is is what gives it life. So I might just do a line edit and put it out as is. And it's called Death Writing, and it will also be out in the summer sometime, or in the fall. That's the plan. So that's that's what I'm planning on publishing, be on Amazon and Gumroad and the usual places uh, going forward. So that's, that's what I'm doing uh, when I say I'm an author. This will be the uh, <coughs> fourth or fifth thing I've um, self-published. Let's, let's say fifth under under my own name that's a uh, novel or novella length, not short stories or anything like that. 
Uh, it's been a while since I did one. I did about three in um, in 2018. Three uh, seven-chapter novellas that I, I liked a lot. And uh, people that read them liked them too. Um, but in the, the current age, it's, it's not enough to be an author. You've also got to be a businessman and a marketer. And that's, that's harder because I, I, didn't, I didn't study that in school. So that's, that's what I'm working on. That's what we're all working on as artists and creatives. I just like that term creative, but uh, it's there. It fits. So that's me. Now, uh, moving on for a little bit, what have, what have I encountered? Did my voice sound professorial and uh, authoritarian enough just there? Uh, did, I, did I sound boring enough? I get that vibe. I... Uh, I sometimes feel the need to, to talk into the microphone as a serious person who has serious ideas about things because that's how I wish to present myself as serious man. And uh, I tried doing a podcast like this like last year and just called it Whatever, which is a terrible name for a podcast because there's about 80 podcasts that have that name. And uh, I listened to it. It was about 20 minutes long having some some interesting ideas about a couple of movies and some music and I was bored and if you're bored with yourself that's not good because if you find yourself boring what's what are other people going to think of you so uh I'm going to try to avoid that talking like that sounding like that because this podcast isn't formal uh this is me expounding verbally ideas I have about content and creation it's a it's a function of the blog and uh if anyone gets any insight out of it that'll be great but i'm not expecting it to be a hit so i can just talk how i want to i don't i don't need to be uh i don't need to be formal so um absinthe is delicious and i i think that's really the point that i'm trying to make anyway movies um, I think I hate movies now. It's, it's possible I've always hated movies. Um, just because, like, 90% of the ones that I've seen are formulaic and have no surprises to offer me and don't really have anything to say beyond the, uh, the, the template that they're working from. But I've seen a lot of movies and, um, that's, that's not really, uh, uh, a brag. I, I wouldn't say that I've seen more movies than the average person, but um, I've kind of completely lost interest in in what movies have become now, or at least what I seem to be uh, seeing as being on offer. I don't. Uh, I don't care. Uh, I don't care. I haven't cared for a very very long time. Um, and I know that that's a, a fairly common lament because a lot of people are, are, are pretty bored by, you know, endless superhero cape movies and uh, regurgitations of Star Wars and uh, the endless cycle of, of endless trash and nostalgia. 
So I don't consider myself alone or, or unique in that regard. I'm just kind of stating where I am. But when movies are, are good, I really like them. And every now and again, I find a movie that I get uh, obsessed with and watch over and over and over and over and over again because it's it's hitting a vibe, it's hitting a need. Um, and uh, when this happened to me when I was younger, I would just uh, I'd be incapable of shutting up about it. Like, I recall a time when I was obsessed with Reservoir Dogs or uh, Train Spotting and... Uh, there might be a couple of more recent films I've I've rewatched a lot that have uh, that have spoken to me. I I seem to have watched Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy a lot um, on Netflix, just kind of on a repeat loop. There's something there. There's something in that movie, in the way that it looks, in the the horror and the despair of it, and the the grind of it, and the the sadness of it that. Uh, that appeals to me not so much the 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 spy narrative which is kind of by the numbers uh don't trust anyone everyone is untrustworthy that kind of that kind of thing um but every now and again i find a movie that i i do find interesting and i i do like to uh to talk about it uh one film that i just happened to watch a few weeks ago which which really made an impression on me was a, a 2016 movie with Amy Adams uh, called Nocturnal Animals, which is uh, essentially a movie about the falsehood of storytelling. It's it's two movies kind of shoved together, uh, two stories shoved together, one story taking place as fictional within the first story, so it's kind of a movie within a movie, which is always uh, an interesting idea when you can pull it off. It's It's basically a woman... Uh, a divorced woman reading uh, a novel written by her ex-husband, uh, and the uh, the uh, the story within the story is a story that her the novel that her husband has wrote. So the the main plot is a a woman pining, silently pining, for the the loss of her ex-husband. She has a new husband now, but uh, that's also going to be over soon because he's uh, uh he's he's not it or whatever reason so she's reading his novel and the within the novel is a story of a man uh bent on revenge for the rape and murder of his wife and daughter and uh the they they use the same actors in both stories so uh the the protagonist of the main plot is the woman and the protagonist of the story within the story is the 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 actor playing the uh the ex-husband so it's that's kind of an interesting kind of meta commentary it's a it's a movie both stories end with the protagonist alone and miserable and dying slowly and um it's it's a movie, uh, as I said, about the falsehood of storytelling, because when you make decisions, uh, they are irreparable, and nothing you can do can ever recover what has been lost. And one of the reasons that we tell stories is to recover a little bit of what has passed, to pass on what has occurred. 
and uh, that's that's why we tell stories. And this is a this is a movie that that comments on on how that's very much an untrue thing. Uh, it's a very it's a nicely visceral movie. It's it's nicely shot. I I've forgotten the name of the director of it, but he's a he's a director who's also like a, a fashion designer. I can't think of the guy's name. He's British, but he's uh it it, it definitely a movie that had an interesting aesthetic and and something interesting to say. It was a little out of the mainstream, and I know how incredibly uh, elitist and snobbish that sounds. I don't mean it to sound that way but i do like to 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 watch something i haven't already seen and this this was a movie i hadn't already seen this did something different and i liked that uh it would be nice if you could find movies that told new kinds of stories that didn't and that didn't always meant it had a sad miserable tragic ending um I'm not going to start talking about the the meaning and value of tragedy. I don't want to sound like Aristotle or Nietzsche. They kind of they've kind of talked about that, uh, uh, Peripatia and all of that. But uh, it would be interesting to see a story be told that was different and surprising and did different things and and had a happy ending. I would like to see that. Um, I would like to write that. I think maybe I always do try to write that when possible. Uh, I always try to create a happy ending when possible just because I I, I don't like the way that uh, unique has to mean nihilistic or tragic. I don't... Uh, that's a trend I, I, I like bucking um, for whatever reason. Uh, obviously, I can't give Caligula a happy ending, but other stories I can. Other stories I can. Other movies, other movies. Uh, I have been making a point to, to watch some movies that are not not the common movies, uh, which is to say, um, a little while ago, I think maybe last year, I wrote a, a post on Content Blues called uh, There's Another Expletive Ghostbusters Movie Coming Out or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the French New Wave. Now, the basic idea behind that is that... Uh, Instead of complaining about what's on offer, I should go out and seek uh, other things because uh, God knows uh, in this era, uh, if you can't find something that interests you or that you appreciate or that resonates with you, you're not looking hard enough. So uh, it's pointless to complain and, uh, and take away from someone else's enjoyment when you can simply find your own enjoyment. That's the the more civilized and uh, charitable thing to do. So uh, I have not actually started loving the French New Wave. Uh, I keep planning on watching like Truffaut, 400 Blows, or um, what's the other guy? Breathless, um, the French New Wave director, the one who invented French New Wave. Why am I blanking on this? Eh, it doesn't matter. It'll come, it'll come back to me as soon as I've forgotten about it. But, you know, other French New Wave directors, but I haven't watched any of them. But what I have done is started uh, uh, collecting stuff from the Criterion Collection, which is like 
the most basic entry uh, film snobbery, film bro uh, elitism that you can uh, you can possibly get just uh, buying elitism at uh, thirty bucks a Blu-ray. Nice transfers though. You definitely see where the money goes. Um, so I grabbed a couple of things over the past several months. Stuff that I already knew that I liked, like uh, Kurosawa's Throne of Blood and uh, Notorious by Hitchcock. It's a great movie, that one. And uh, Stagecoach, which is the only John Wayne movie that uh, that Criterion could force themselves to, to put out with their label on it, the snobs. So I have been kind of trying to explore and uh and seek things out and uh you know determine what is it about movies that interest me what is it that i like what is it that i appreciate and try to come to an understanding via consumption you know call it thoughtful consumption uh because that sounds you know adorably pretentious so that's that's kind of where i'm at with with movies um Although, having said all that, uh, I saw a trailer for The Green Knight uh, that's supposed to come out sometime this year, and that, that looked really good. Uh, it's an A24 film, which is uh, usually a sign of quality, so hopefully that'll be good. And I'm, you know, I'm still waiting for Dune to come out. I'm excited about that, if that ever happens. Um, you know what else looked good was The Batman. It's a shame they didn't actually finish making that or if they did i don't know but it looked interesting um i like robert pattinson in the the lighthouse so i have zero problem with him being batman so that looked uh that looked like a possibility even if it was done in the vein of of joker which wasn't a bad movie a little overhyped maybe but you know not bad it was all right um Maybe maybe by the time I do my next episode, I'll also have finally gotten around to watching uh, Blade Runner 2049. I can get around to, to discussing that. is the stuff of life that doesn't make any sense but it sounds really good and nobody minds so music is the stuff of life la 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 um i'm always always hungrily uh collecting music i uh <laughs> I could probably be accused of uh, of trying to make up for a, a lost adolescence. I don't think I, I really got into music until I was in my late teens or early twenties, and I I have been uh, I've been trying to rival the CD collections of the kids I went to college with ever since. And now, of course, I have like vinyl, and I have um, I've started getting tapes again. I started doing a mixtape actually, which I haven't done for. God, almost 20 years. 
Um, but I did with my with my daughters. We're we're making a mixtape because I've I've got a good tape deck and I've got a good uh, turntable and a halfway decent CD player and I can I can record stuff to tape and it's it's fun. It's a fun thing we're doing. So uh, I've got uh, got a much better collection now than than the last time I was I was making a mixtape. So some really some really interesting variety should be should be hopping on that. Um, what uh, what I've noticed is uh, just just as a, a brief observation to what I pay attention to, which is not very much. I'm I'm way too old to try to to, to follow current trends in pop music. And music is so postmodern now that there's 85 different genres to pay attention to. So I don't think even the kids, um, the teenagers today, know uh, 100% of what's going on. It's uh, pop culture is entirely bifurcated. Mu mu music culture is entirely split, atomized. Um, it all depends on what you're into. And uh, the only way to, to figure out what you're into is to, uh, is to explore it. Um, the music scene today is, a, is an ocean that you uh, create by exploring it. And uh, yeah, so what I, what I have observed, uh, to actually complete the sentence that I started, is uh, a lot of uh, a 90s nostalgia, a lot of 90s stuff being uh, st stuff that was actually from the 90s being being re-released on um, on vinyl which is funny because nothing was getting released on vinyl in the 90s and like I just got a I just got a copy of copper blue by sugar which was uh, sugar was the second band from the uh, Bob mold from from Husker do so you know fairly obscure fairly obscure but uh, Andrew Earl recommended it in his book Gimme Indie Rock, which I've I've used to make a number of purchases um, over the last five years. Mostly stuff on CD, but this time I got uh, I got Sugar on vinyl. And it's the the most lovely '90s sounding thing that that you could hope for. It's kind of perfect. If if Husker Du sounded exactly like the '80s, then Sugar sounds exactly like the '90s. Everything's very very bright and uh, and weird and uh not really psychedelic but like teasing in that direction and um way poppier than it wants to admit that it is and uh and and, and a little strange a little 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 off off center which is the, the wonderful thing about the 90s aesthetic was that everything was off center and deliberately so which if uh if you weren't going from the ages of, of 13 to 23 during the 90s, you would find irritating and regrettable. But I was going from the ages of 13 to 23 during the 90s, so it was wonderful. And uh, I, I'm, I loved the 90s aesthetic. I loved it while it was happening. I'm not nostalgic about it because I, I recognize that it, it was a bit silly but uh, it always puts a, a nice warm place in my heart. And uh, I don't want to go back there necessarily, but I, I do enjoy uh, reminiscing. And uh, some of the other things I've been listening to um, are, are kids trying to, to recreate that sound. I, 
I bought a cassette tape off of Bandcamp um, from a, a group calling itself Green Witch Recordings, and it was a compilation tape of a bunch of bands trying to go for that 90s vibe, a lot of uh, grunge and shoegaze and uh, kind of splitting the difference between the two, uh, a, lot of, a lot of fuzz tone guitar and uh, off-kilter beats and, uh, and strained vocals. You know, vocals that sounded like they were recorded someplace else and then and then put back on there. But I do observe that. And I don't know if that's something that's being uh, marketed to uh, aging Gen Xers like myself or if it's just, you know, something the kids are dusting off and appreciating. I, I hope it's the latter. Um, I'm not even going to be mad at them. Uh, for doing it wrong, because they will do it wrong. Uh, they're definitely doing 90s fashion wrong. My, my wife can't stand the way people are buying high-waisted jeans and mixing stuff from the early line 90s to the late 90s. They're just, they're just doing it wrong. And it, it doesn't matter because the kids don't care. What is there left to talk about but, uh, but books? which I probably should have talked about before when I was talking about what I was writing, what I was reading, because what I was reading has been informing what I was writing, but I didn't, and so I'm going to talk about it now, and the world won't end, so we're just going to, we're just going to roll. Um, I have been reading for the past several months some of the Penguin Great Ideas books, um, which is this tiny little series of uh, little, little, short essays, essay selections from uh, famous writers and philosophers. I think I started with Seneca, which I think I, I mentioned uh, before when I was talking about Marcus Aurelius. I read Seneca's On the Shortness of Life, and I read um, On Art and Life by John Ruskin, which was a total blind buy, something I'd, uh, something I'd never even heard of, a man I'd never even heard of, but it was... Uh, it was in my wheelhouse, and it was just like an essay and also an address he gave at a college once. It wasn't really a book that he wrote. It was uh, an edited creation. But uh, I thought it was interesting. He had some, some interesting ideas about the, the nature of Gothic architecture, which was uh, very 19th century, but uh, also very uh, thought-provoking. And he had some interesting ideas about uh, the aesthetic consequences of industrialization that I thought are uh, definitely worth reading. Um, he definitely comes across with a kind of like reactionary agrarian vibe. And uh, boy, I just I just love that. Uh, and I'm not being ironic when I say that. I, I That's, that's always a, a set of ideas I've found interesting uh, ever since I discovered Chesterton. But, so I read that, and I, I, read, I read some Nietzsche, um, because some, some people on Twitter have been suggesting to me that postmodern philosophy is worth reading, uh, just as a way of describing where we find ourselves in the early 21st century. So I'm trying to, to give that a go. I don't know if Nietzsche is officially postmodern or not. He seems to be, but postmodern is an entirely vague word, as it should be. So, whatever. Um, I do have a, a very nice uh, 
heritage edition of, you know, hardback heritage edition of uh, Thus Spake Zarathustra, which I read every now and again. And I find interesting as a, as a poetic exercise, as a kind of faux epic, um, almost a, a kind of a shamanistic attempt to pull thought uh, out of the mind through a character. Or, or maybe that's what he's doing. I, I find Thus Spake Zarathustra to be much more much more digestible than his, uh, his other works because I've tried to read Beyond Good and Evil and I get about um, like, you know, 20 pages in and I just want to slap the bastard because he writes like a drunk talks and it's entertaining but also inconsistent and his thought is kind of wandering all over creation without adhering to anything so you're never a hundred percent certain exactly what he's talking about and you just find yourself wishing you'd read Hegel and Schopenhauer first and then you could maybe understand what what he's doing but then you have to read Hegel and I don't want to read Hegel so that's kind of that's kind of where I am with that um it might be that uh I should approach Nietzsche the same way I approach uh, William S. Burroughs. Um, I don't want to get into the whole vibe of the beats, but I've had a problem with Burroughs for a long time, which is to say I've had a copy of Nova Express that I keep trying to read and can't because of the way it was written. He, he did that, that cut-up style where he just kind of... He didn't... It wasn't a book that was written so much as it was congealed, and I find it very frustrating. But uh, recently, I was reading. Uh, I was I was attempting to write something for for unnamed journal, and wanting to 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 shake up my my uh, either shake up my process of of creating a story, or just because I didn't know how to, to get where I wanted it to go. So I kind of opened up Nova Express at random, so to some random page, and just kind of let the words go through my brain without attempting to lock down every subject and predicate as adhering or cohering to some overarching narrative and let just let the words do what they wanted to do and I kind of appreciated it more and it kind of helped me uh write the story Aleman Blues which appeared in um not the new issue of Unnamed Journal but the last one the in the, the January issue um and I thought that was successful. I, I wrote a story in a new way that, that did some things that I don't normally do. And I, I, I appreciated that. Um, it was a little meta, but I, uh, I, enjoyed, I enjoyed the process of creating it. And, and sometimes when you're, when you're constantly trying to create varietal short fiction, you can get, uh, you can get very bored with your methods. So any, any way of, of shaking yourself up is, uh, can be useful um, as far as that goes. So I've been reading, trying to read Nietzsche in the same way, and that's okay. 
Um, I may or may not start reading some uh, Baudrillard or Foucault. Probably Baudrillard. Because Baudrillard arrived on the scene in France by uh, challenging Foucault. And I, I think I, I, I hate Foucault a lot. Just because he uses words like technology to mean things that most people don't mean by technology. It's, and that bothers me. Because it's like you're, you're being deliberately as obfuscatory. Um, I just don't like him in general. So uh, perhaps, perhaps Baudrillard, I'm at least familiar with the Matrix, so there, there may be something there. And who knows, he may have been, he may have been right about, uh, about, the, about the world in which we find ourselves. So we'll see how that goes. I, I haven't read any of it yet, so stay tuned. Um, in terms of uh, one thing that I, I did, I think I mentioned this earlier in the podcast about... Uh, reading uh, Roman stuff, you know, reading stuff that was written in the time of ancient Rome. Uh, so reading Lucretius, who was a philosopher and a poet, um, reading Ovid, reading uh, the Aeneid, uh, all things that would have been um, written and known during the, during the reign of Caligula, things he might have had a chance to have been exposed to as... as uh, a prince of the court and as an emperor. And uh, the other thing that I found on my Kindle and started reading was the Satyricon, uh, which was supposed to be this this marvelous satire, but which I have found very, very much a chore. Um, it's it's very bluntly, uninterestingly decadent. Uh, it is it is decadent without wit. So. It's 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 like reading an account of a frat party that never ends and is just is merely described without uh without humor and without charm and without joy without without really even pleasure. So you you kind of you kind of want to wash yourself after after you read it it's 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 grotesque is is the only word that uh that comes to mind that fits there there it's grotesque and that's uh kind of interesting to to read something that's that old and and to be grossed out by it uh i don't know if that means uh if that means anything but uh it's it can be comforting to know that uh, humanity's always been capable of being that uh, dimly decadent. So maybe things will be okay. I don't know. Uh, I also speaking of Burroughs, I, I got a sample on Kindle of of Cities of the Red Knight, which is one of his later books. I haven't decided if I like it or not. I probably don't. Um. I feel like there's a an idea or a vibe in there that I want to check out, but I don't want to deal with the, the way he's going to tell it. So uh, I might read the sample and just, um, just be done with it and use it as a set of ideas to inform other things because it, it just seems like uh, low-grade Lovecraft. 
and uh, I don't, I don't want to do that. I, I read a very interesting essay about Cities of the Red Knight by some author who's uh, read a lot of Lovecraft and a lot of uh, a lot of Burroughs, and, and had some interesting insights into the work. But I have I have not enjoyed reading it. I have not. Um, and I haven't read, enjoyed trying to read Simulacra by Philip, Philip K. Dick. Philip K. Dick uh, really is his hit or miss with me. When he's good, he's really good. But when he's not, it is, it's, it's very much a chore. Like, I, I, I read Ubik, and it was kind of a big so what. Um, a Scanner Darkly was a much better book. I haven't picked up... Uh, I have a copy of Man in the High Castle that I've been meaning to read, but will probably not get to anytime soon because of the way I got supremely bored with the Amazon series Man in the High Castle. Something that I thought started really strong, but really got... really got... TV tropey as it went on, and uh, I don't know. I find myself, I found myself very uninterested in in going on with it. It it had become banal. But anyway, Simulacra is a story that hasn't really taken off for me. It's it's uh, <laughs> it's it's set in a a, a far distant future. Or the far distant future, as Philip K. Dick was imagining it in the '60s, in which the uh, the presidency of the United States is that isn't really a thing, but the first lady is, and the first lady is kind of like a a monarch, and uh, that's pretty much the only thing I've retained. Also, psychiatry is illegal for some reason, and uh, everyone's in lives in uh, strange collectives. It's a it's an un unrecognizable America, which is kind of the, what Philip K. Dick seemed to like to write. Um, I'm not drinking absinthe anymore. I've, I've switched to beer. And thank God. Um, but I haven't, I haven't had a chance that... Uh, I think I started reading that because it had... Uh, I was looking for a copy of Simulacra and Simulation by Baudrillard, and this popped up, and I've already read some Phil K. Dick, so I was like, all right, I'll give this a try. This looks interesting, and it hasn't got interesting yet. Uh, it might later on. I will let you know. All right, this is the part where I shill. This is the part where I shill. Because you got to shill at the end of a podcast or else you're doing it wrong. So, shilling. Now, obviously, if you're here, uh, you're, 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 you've, you're probably watching this on the, on the website Content Blues because I'm definitely going to post it there. And uh, so that's where the action happens. That's, that's, my, uh, that's my life as an author is, is there. Uh, and if you you look at the pages of, of books I've written and things I've things I've created, you'll you'll find them there. So contentblues.com, woo! And uh, there's also Shallow and Pedantic, which is the home of Unnamed Journal, the aforementioned literary magazine. Uh, Shallow and Pedantic has a number of uh, places online. It doesn't have a website yet, but we're thinking about that. Uh, 
There's the uh, the Patreon, patreon.com slash shallow pedantic. If you uh, if you subscribe, you get uh, free access to um, all issues of Unnamed Journal and early access to the Shallow and Pedantic uh, podcast. There's also we're also on Gumroad, gumroad.com slash shallow pedantic. I think that's the the URL. That's us. Uh, so you can you can buy direct if you if you don't like Patreon. All the unnamed journal stuff going back years is uh, is also available on on Amazon. We have a YouTube channel and we're we're on we're on Discord. You can you can hang out with us then too. So we we are in all the places and uh, I am just here. So thanks for listening to my podcast. I uh, appreciate it more than you know. Make sure you. Uh, like and subscribe if you actually liked it and want to subscribe. That's a that's a good thing to do because uh, then I'll know. Thank you.